Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pathfinder presented by Payload, the leading digital media company in the space industry. I'm your host, Mo Islam, and today we're joined by Evan Rogers, the CEO and co-founder of True Anomaly. Founded just last year, True Anomaly has already caught the DoD's eyes with their plans to build fleets of autonomous, actively responsive satellites that can be used for military missions in space. But before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsors. Spider Oak's Orbit Secure software is designed for hybrid space operators struggling to manage the chaos of securing data flow and access to and from tens of thousands of small satellites in low Earth orbit. Using a unique combination of end-to-end zero-trust encryption and blockchain-distributed ledger, Orbit Secure allows your mission to orchestrate and secure Earth-to-orbit, orbit-to-Earth transmission, communication, and storage of sensitive data across even the most complex and unsecure hybrid space environments. To learn how Orbit Secure can bring zero trust security and resiliency to your zero gravity environments, check out SpiderOak at www.spideroak.com. Evan, welcome to the show. Mo, thanks. Great to be here. Or, uh, or should I say, Jolly? That's your call sign, isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah, I probably should take that off LinkedIn. You know, people, <laughs> some people think it's uh, people call me Jolly. They think it's my first name. Well, I asked one of, one, one of your members of your team to get to, for your email so I could send you the calendar invite for this and the email read Jolly. And I was like, yeah, is that is that him? <laughs> I got the but but uh, I, I did a little Googling and I was like, oh, that's cool. It's his call sign. So we're obviously going to yeah. start with that story. OK. Oh, well, man. Uh, unfortunately, there are rules around telling call sign stories. Oh, First of all, they can never be recorded. Oh, yeah. And you have to buy me a beer, Mo. So next time, maybe we can <laughs> okay, come to the factory and we can do that. <laughs> all right. But, fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Yeah. OK. Well, you you uh, well, you were in the Air Force, right? So maybe let's start I there. I would love yeah. to hear a little bit about your story of how um, you uh, you know went from um, the military um, to Silicon Valley. Now, there, there, there's more of that these days, but um, mm-hmm. you know, that's certainly not something that I think that wasn't a a career path that we saw a lot of 10 years ago. Yeah, or or it was a career path that a select number of veterans took that kind of came from certain operational communities, the special operations committee SEALs. Very few people are, I think are coming out of the space community or their air community. Doing it. So exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you my background. Um, I was a space operations officer in the Air Force for nine years. Um, the community that I was a part of became the kind of the seed for the Space Force from a personnel standpoint. Um, I started my career in 2012 uh, out of officer training school. And I was one of the rare folks that actually wanted to go be a space operations officer. A lot of people don't pick it as their number one choice coming out of school. Um, but I've always been a space nerd, so to speak. I've always loved it. I've always sort of dreamt about all the wonderful things that humans can do in space um, and wanted to go participate as much as I could uh, with a liberal arts education. The best way to do that was the military, or mm-hmm. I was going to go get a PhD in anthropology or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I chose I chose the former. Um, my career happened to be right on top of when the space community was start starting to speak a little bit more openly about the threats to space systems after effectively a 10-year hiatus um, that came from focusing the Department of Defense's efforts on counterinsurgency operations in the Middle East. So up until really 2000, 2001, there really was a concerted effort to think through vulnerabilities in the space domain. There was an effort that was led by uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the secretary at the time, um, to to put together a commission to say, you know, what are the vulnerabilities that we have that that basically lost its momentum as a result mm-hmm. of 9-11. We spent 10 years in counterinsurgency operations. And then we were reminded that 
there's this thing that's happening in the background called global great power competition. And again, I started my career right as the community was starting to think through those things more seriously. Uh, I started my career at the organization called Fourth Space Operations Squadron. Um, we flew big billion dollar satellites to do national security missions. <clears throat> so I saw the, the sort of legacy approach to space operations, right? Satellites that are not designed to defend themselves, that are basically just like what General Hyten called uh, big, fat, juicy targets in space. Um, I was happy to be witness to a couple of, uh, of activities by China and Russia that were kind of wake-up calls to the space community. Um, that got me interested in how do we think about defending systems that were designed to be defended? <clears throat> so I went to a school called the Air Force Weapons School, which is sort of the, the top gun for space. Um, I only use that. There's probably Air, Air Force people listening to this who would say, dude, don't say that. But it's the way that everybody <laughs> else understands it. Yeah. <laughs> so there's going to be a movie about, about, about you at some point. Oh, no, no way. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. And hopefully not. Yeah. But Tom Cruise will probably be around to play me if there, if there were. The, the dude doesn't age, right? No, it does not age, no. <laughs> yeah. we'll, have so, hear, we'll, so, we'll have to hear about some of your uh, stunts while, while you're serving. There are many. <clears throat> so, I don't want to get you in trouble. We're not talking about that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Those are also conversations <laughs> yeah. over a beer. Yeah, so... So I went to the Air Force Weapons School, finished that in 2016. I went to an organization called the, the Space Aggressors, the 527 Space Aggressor Squadron. One of the coolest units in the Air Force, um, a group of operators uh, that, are, that study the tactics of um, our adversaries and then go fly systems that aren't really designed to be used as threat replication systems, but to go train blue audiences. But with, and that means other fellow operators like myself to really get the first experience of quote combat operations. This really started in the air community um, with a, with the air aggressors, red air and the space community realized that it needed it as well. And so stood up the 527 space aggressor squadron. I was the weapons officer there. And while I was there, I got the opportunity to, to sort of mature threat replication uh, in space for space audiences. Up until that point, it had largely been focused on sort of what space is providing to the air and other joint fight, which we can get into uh, if, if you're interested later on, uh, sort of part of the, the, the arc of evolution of space operations. Um, so got an opportunity to do that with one of my co-founders, Dan Brunsky. We flew a spacecraft called the ANGELS satellite. Uh, which is a horrible acronym, <laughs> very typical of the Department of Defense military systems, um, to fly sort of what we believe were adversary th flight profiles. Um, after that, I was picked up to go to DARPA, and then I went to an organization called Space Security and Defense Program based in Colorado Springs, where I led a team of operators, scientists, and engineers to develop tactics and test systems um, in their operational environment. And then rounded out my career at Joint Task Force Space Defense in Colorado Springs also. Spent a lot of time in Colorado, um, where I was a joint fires officer responsible for planning space capabilities and integrating those space capabilities into jo the joint fight. And I keep using that term. And what that means is just military operations that involve other services, including the Space Force now. So airspace, cyber. We all we fight as a joint force. We don't fight as a service. Um, and then while I was 
in that assignment, I just had a couple of experiences that made it very clear that the space security community, space defense community, it, that included um, the defense industrial base was ripe for disruption and that we needed to move faster than we were moving and we needed to work more efficiently than we were moving and working uh, to fill, fill the capabilities that we really need urgently to provide a credible deterrent um, against adversaries like Russia and China and to secure the space domain so that we can take the next big leap as a species. So long story, but that's that's kind of my background and then the initial genesis to, to leaping over into what you called, you know, quote, Silicon Valley. Yeah, no, that's a it's an ama- amazing story. And um, uh, I, I, I want to hear you're you're at a, you're at a point now where you've actually you you've clearly understood and 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 you have a firm grasp over what um, the DoD needs, right? From a capabilities perspective, right? So you're sitting there, and I'm kind of wondering at that point. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the idea for True Anomaly was brewing, and was it something where you were like, "Hey, I need to be, um, I sort of need to be on my own with the team to be able to pull this off in the speed that I want to be able to pull it off." Um, or was it some, or, or what ultimately drove you to, to kind of take the leap and, and, and start True Anomaly? And, and, and maybe um, before we jump into that question, actually, why don't we give uh, the audience a quick overview of what True Anomaly is? Sure. Yeah. True Anomaly is a defense industrial partner for um, the national security space enterprise, which consists of the intelligence community, the Space Force, and others. Um, Our vision is a secure, sustainable, and stable space environment for the benefit of the U.S. allies and partners. Um, In response to sort of the consequences, the potential consequences of a conflict extending into space. And I think we're going to talk about that later at the Mo. So we'll we'll leave that there. Um, Yeah, the, the genesis really was... Again, these these two three experiences that one of my co-founders and I had, Tom, Tom Nichols, who's our chief product officer, in which Russia or China would do something, and we would get approached. We're on the ops floor in Shriver Air Force Base, and a general officer would come over to us and say, "Jolly Pumper, his call signs Pumper, um, <clears throat> what do we have to deal with these threats?" And the answer, you know, in short, was nothing until. Not nothing for a long time, right? Right. Um, and th- that's a slight exaggeration, but it always seemed like the the need was now, and the capabilities were too far out to make a difference, and too far out to really reliably be effective when they would be fielded. Right. Mm-hmm. The 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 hallmark one of the hallmarks of the space environment today from a security standpoint is that it's rapidly evolving. And so you really can't take the approach of making these um, grand technological investments that take five to 10 years to field and tens of billions of dollars to field. You have to iterate very quickly. Yep. And you have to do that without an understanding of formal requirements or without the government articulating formal, formal requirements, because the truth is that even those requirements are a work in progress. Our understanding of the things that we want to do in the space domain are a work in progress still today. And so if we study the problem for three years and then spend five to 10 years building a solution, well, it's almost certainly going to be obsolete, right? Right. So I looked around at the at the landscape of contractors and just realized that there wasn't an industrial partner for the Space Force that could move at speed with understanding. Um, and 
field the solutions that are foundational to space security and to the way that the space force and intelligence community, you know, we believe wants to operate. How did you, uh, how did you pick your initial team? Um, they were the, the f- team of four co-founders. You mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All people that I trusted and who I knew brought very specific perspectives to the conversation. Um, people that just had great judgment and a great capacity for strategic thinking um, and knew and knew what we didn't know, knew what they didn't know about industry. I mean, look, veterans starting businesses is, is a compelling and interesting thing, but also comes with risk because while we may have leadership skills and ability and operational practices and um, running a business is analogous, but different enough that you can certainly fall into the trap where you think that like, Oh, I, I kind of, I know how to do this. Right. Cause yeah, I've no, run I, teams. I, I, <laughs> I definitely, I want to get into that a little bit because is uh, the four of you guys have very, very interesting backgrounds and, 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 yeah. and I love sort of the, the, the complementary nature and, and, and how you're um, in, the, in the parts of the business that you're building. But of course, like you said, you know, the natural, the natural like uh, impression that you get reading all of your backgrounds is, you know, Great leaders, right? So I uh, definitely want to think about how you guys are thinking about the, you know, the commercial side of now running a business together, the four of you. Um, but before we get into that, uh, let's talk really quickly about product, right? So um, I know you have a, um, a, a mission coming up uh, later this year. Uh, what are sort of the initial products that you are uh, developing that you've started to gain, gain traction with the government? And how are you sort of thinking that, about that kind of product roadmap over the next couple of years? We're really going after what we view are the big problems for the Space Force. So it starts there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and where we think that there isn't necessarily an incumbency that already exists. So for us, that looks like operational test and training infrastructure. That looks looks like um, uh, responsive operations and dynamic operations. And it looks like space domain awareness. So those are the three focus areas from a product standpoint. The Jackal spacecraft that we've built satisfies the substan- the significant requirements that exist across all of those products. And the Jackal spacecraft, the Jackal Autonomous Orbital Vehicle is a spacecraft that's designed to operate safely in close proximity to other satellites autonomously um, to do really mostly intelligence and imaging operations, but those types of operations also apply to things like training. So you wanna be able to maneuver and change other states of the vehicle uh, to, to learn how to fly in the space domain but also test other capabilities in the space domain. So those are the three, those are the three focus areas for the business. And then that's supported by a software suite we call Mosaic. Mosaic is a command and control software and a training software that allows for the ingestion of heterogeneous data sources, filters that through sophisticated algorithms of our own design that make sense of the space environment activities in the space domain in ways that that are unique. Um, because again, our Dan Bronski in particular and our CTO and my background was in tactics research. So if you, if you think about operational problems and astrodynamics problems through the lens of, um, sense-making, mm-hmm. delivering data to an operator, the right kind of data to an operator to be able to answer certain operational questions, then you develop displays and workflows that are very different than traditional command and control systems today. And so we want to develop a software suite that 
allowed operators to very quickly create develop intuition about their environment and then control vehicles or, or heterogeneous suites of vehicles to achieve missions at the at sort of the level of effect rather than at the level of vehicle control. So those are the two, those are the, sort of the two technologies and the three product vote verticals for Trinomi. Right. So um, as far as sort of the uh, demo mission coming up, uh, is that a um, is that a revenue generating mission from the government, if, if you can speak to that? And then two, um, if it's not, if it's just developing flight heritage, um, what will the Jackal be doing exactly? Is it going to be taking a, a image of uh, a um, an adversary's craft or is it just really testing the capability by doing um, you know, reconnaissance work on? on uh, another type of asset. I'm going to pass on the contractual aspects of that mission uh, sure. just for now, Mo. But, yeah. but the, the objective of that, there's, there's several objectives. We obviously have core technical objectives, but just at a high level, um, flight heritage is obviously really important. It's important to note that we're using well-known subsystems mm-hmm. um, that, are, that are mature technologies that have a higher manufacturing readiness level, a high technology readiness level, because we don't think that the major innovations today are in hardware. It's actually at the convergence of hardware and software, that sense-making process. Mm-hmm. So it's very, it's very easy for us to just say, yep, all of that, all the hardware that's sort of available to commercial operators today, subsystems that are available are sufficient to go de- deliver a first-generation capability and then really focus on incredible software and autonomy. Um, so it's the flight heritage and the maturity of the interface between software and hardware, the mm-hmm. concept of operations, which means can we go fly the thing safely? Got it. And then um, can we prove out new tactics and new techniques and procedures? And the reason that we're launching two satellites this fall as opposed to just one, which is pretty typical of, of, of kind of a typical uh, or very typical of most commercial operators who are testing a, set, a system for the first time is we needed to do um, imaging of a target that we had control of. So we need to launch two satellites. We need to be able to change the state of one of the satellites um, selectively and in a mm-hmm. controlled way mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, that, right. so that we could test the effects of lighting, the effects of, of proximity, the effects of maneuvers right by your target um so two 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 jackals that are going to be working basically and testing each other effectively right different maneuvers different capabilities yeah i see okay yeah and there's a natural like anti-fragility to that too so like if one breaks we can still achieve a ton of our objectives right got it uh and 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 have you um have you publicly announced when that mission is going to take place yeah, it'll be on. It'll be launched on SpaceX Transporter Nine, so one of these big transporter missions that you know, Great. sixty satellites go up on. Uh, we have two of the slots on it. Great, awesome. Uh, now, but, I hope it's not too much of a stretch, but I'm I'm curious um, as far as your you know um, initial customer base and your market is it, is it safe to say that 100 percent of that market is going to be governments, um, or do you see other types of non-state actors? Um, and uh, at a at a at a at a larger scale, how do you think about sort of the size of that market today? and where, what it looks like over the long run. Yeah, I'm gonna, let me work backwards into that. So the, the size of the market is, is large and growing. Uh, the, the, the estimates, I mean, you can go to any, any number of sort of resources and, and get estimates that are you know, in the trillion dollar range over the next 10 years. <clears throat> um, the thesis that we have about the market is that a security infrastructure has to exist in order for the commercial 
the growth of the commercial market to exist, right? Given what we, given sort of the state of, of contemporary geo, geopolitics. So when I said that the vision of Chernomaly is a secure, stable, um, and sustainable space environment, what I'm really talking about is that if you look sort of through history, the lines of commerce, the lines of communication that make um, countries and and sort of the global order successful is an underlying security apparatus and security infrastructure, right? So there has to be a minimum level of certainty mm-hmm. that your goods aren't going to be affected as you travel from point A to point B, right? And if you look at some of the many like sort of strategic hotspots terrestrially around the world, they're in areas of very important shipping, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the, the flow of, of commerce. So I think the same sort of phenomenon is going to emerge in the space domain. And what that looks like is a company that, what that looks like for True Anomaly is, is the, um, the technologies and the processes that scale as the commercial market scales and even creates a market that allows for the commercial market to grow um, even, even more substantially. We're starting that process in the DOD because we believe that the that the technologies are going to mature ironically more quickly in the Department of Defense because the, the operational challenges are more severe in the Department of Defense the, the, mm-hmm. presented by the, the DOD today. We will very quickly expand our offering to include um, commercial and civil. Not ready to say anything specific about that, but we're certainly sure. today cultivating strategic relationships that will allow us to capitalize on that when the time comes. Yeah, got it. Great. Okay. Uh, so uh, a, a metric I've heard um, you've referenced in the past is um, is cost to maneuver, and uh, would love for you to explain a little bit of like what that means, especially in the context of of, of the space force and defense systems. Um, yeah. What is wh- why is that metric so important? Yeah, that's this is one of my favorite topics. That's uh, Evan. That's what I'm here for. I want to. I want yeah, to just, just give you some good softballs. Yeah. Some softballs. Yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the metric, the metric is cost cost per maneuver. Right. Cost yeah. comes in many forms, but we track dollar cost per meter per second. So meter per second is is uh, your change in velocity delta v change of velocity um, required to change your orbit. So there are a couple of ways to achieve cost per meter per second optimal cost per meter per second. You can have really, really big systems that are relatively inexpensive, but have a ton of gas, right? A ton of delta V. Or you can have thousands and thousands of systems that have a a scaled amount of gas, but that are very, very, very inexpensive, right? So you can achieve the same effect from the standpoint of um, that singular metric. The other thing that you have to consider is time of flight. So can I get to a place where I need to get to in a reasonable amount of time? If I have a large spacecraft that has a ton of Delta V, but has low impulse, then I, I really can't get, I can't meet operational requirements because it may take me months, right? This is the, right. this is the problem of electric propulsion. So we explore propulsion techniques and, um, and that, that drive towards sort of an optimal relationship between total Delta V capacity and um, cost per meter per second. But then that also, levies requirements on your your use of subsystems and things like that right the reason maneuver is so important is uh let's we'll just talk almost sort of exclusively from a dod perspective if if i need to have an effect in the battle space it, it is I, I need to be able to 
get from point A to point B, like just at a very fundamental level, right? Yep. I, I have the capability that I have where I have it. It's not likely that I have the capability where I need it, right? When a conflict starts. So I, I need to be able to get there and I need to have that asset be um, sort of expendable enough that I don't mind using it, right? So this goes to the sort of the ca- the risk calculus of commanders, of operational commanders. If I have a low level of information, right? And the, the, the arsenal that I have at my disposal is very inexpensive, then I'm going to be very risk off, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to take risks to develop the situation necessarily. But if I, but if I am suffering from a a significant amount of resources and I have a ton of information that on the opposite side of the scale, then I'm going to take more risks and I'm going to be able to seize the initiative, which means the outcome, I have a higher probability of the engagement outcome being in my favor, right? So cost per meter per second is just the metric we use to, to describe sort of the operational utility of systems like the Jackal autonomous robot vehicle. I see. So, uh, so then, so then taking, um, a, a quick step back, cause you did mention like, um, on the hardware side and the hardware hardware build of something like Jackal, you know, there it sounds like that there's um, a bit of kind of integration of off-the-shelf components, but really the special mm-hmm. sauce comes from the software software layer mosaic that you guys are building. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, autonomy for a second? Like how autonomous is autonomous? Like where does AI fit into the tech stack? Um, and then I would love to get a sense, a little bit of like um, the data side of what you're collecting, the data that you're collecting. How do you plan to handle um, a lot of that data? Obviously, it seems like, you know, I, I assume it'll be a significant amount of data that you're collecting once you're operational um, and sort of the data infrastructure that you have in place to kind of handle that. Yeah. So on the autonomy side, th- these are these are open areas of research. So what we are trying to find is the right level of autonomy. Um, if if we knew everything about the way that we want to operate in the space domain, we, we might be able to drive towards a, a high level of autonomy right off the bat. But there are just open questions about what decisions we want computers to make in conflict. And because we have less experience in space operations in, a, in combat, frankly, than we do in other domains, human intervention becomes more important because you don't want sort of your autonomy to make things worse, right? You don't want to create a negative feedback loop. Um, so this is an area that we will explore on orbit. The way that we're initially exploring that is using artificial intelligence to conduct most of the maneuver planning and some machine vision work. That maneuver planning is presented to a human operator, and then the human operator uploads a set of states to the vehicle. That calculation is not necessarily happening on happening on board, although we do have the computational capacity to go do that. We're really focused on crawl, walk, run, right? We need to know what the right level, what, what are the things we can reliably say that autonomy should be used for? And then we'll build, we'll build from there. There's a lot of really interesting um, applications, certainly, but for us, it's mostly focused on maneuver. Um, from a data standpoint, the data that we want to collect on orbit is primarily in optical and infrared. So we'll be operating at ranges in proximity to a spacecraft to be able to create uh, resolved imagery. And that's useful for, you know, figuring out what kind of thrusters are on a satellite and what kind of solar panels are on a satellite. And does it have a, maybe a payload that we didn't know existed, right? Which are really important questions for the military and the intelligence community to, to be able to answer um, as it thinks about what the, the scale of the threat that's being presented by China and Russia really is today, right? There's a lot of just unknowns. 
because there isn't like sort of a, a, a scaled on-orbit verification capability yet. So we're starting with, with uh, optical um, information in the infrared and the visible light spectrums, and we'll add other phenomenologies as we go forward. We will process that data onboard, we'll process that data offboard, and then collect it, basically create a repository for our, for our own purposes and for customer purposes. How are you? Uh, how are you thinking about security um, and the integrity of the data that you're collecting, right? So that a jackal isn't getting hacked or attacked itself. There's, I, there's, I think there's been a number of senior leaders that that have said that like the first salvo is, you know, the first salvo of the next major conflict is in space, but it's coming in the cyber domain, right? So it's an attack against space infrastructure or space assets. I, I think that that's probably true, and certainly one of the risks for True Anomaly is we start to that we track very carefully. Uh, and we invest in very heavily is our the infrastructure of our spacecraft, the cyber infrastructure of the spacecraft, and the security of that uh, infrastructure. But also our our own company's infrastructure. There's been there's been countless cases, too many of state actors exfiltrating data on designs of really important weapon systems, and we don't we certainly don't want to be a target. Um, one of the risks of of having a public presence <laughs> is that it makes us, it makes us sort of a more, um, it puts us into the, into the awareness of our, of potential adversaries, which is a major concern for us. And the, and the, the best way to deal with that is just invest in it. And we do. Well, I'll tell you, you've done a really good job, um, uh, hiding your capabilities. Cause even as I was uh, thinking about this conversation, I was like, you know, obviously furiously Googling as much as I could. And I'm like, man, there's not a lot about these guys out there. <laughs> So yeah. this has been this has been uh, this has been enlightening. But Evan, we got to take a quick break. Um, this is it's a great conversation. Um, and, and excited to keep to to, to continue. But uh, just bear with us a second, and we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Space is the new frontier for cybersecurity. To quote the commander of the U.S. Space Forces Operations Command, cyber threats are unfortunately the soft underbelly of our global space networks. Spider Oak, the leader in space cybersecurity software, is dedicated to providing space operators with the solutions they need to protect hybrid space systems. Their Orbit Secure software uses a unique combination of end-to-end zero-trust encryption and blockchain distributed ledger, allowing missions to orchestrate and secure Earth-to-orbit, orbit-to-Earth transmission, communication, and storage of sensitive data across even the most complex and unsecure LEO and hybrid space systems. To learn how Orbit Secure can bring zero trust security and resiliency to your zero gravity environments, check out SpiderOak at www.spideroak.com. All right, Evan, uh, welcome back. So uh, I wanted to um, shift gears for a second and talk a little bit um, at a high level. Um, I know that you know the, the DoD loves the term um, uh, tactically responsive. Right, and uh, so much so that they've they've significantly in- increased their ask to Congress um, for a budget to launch uh, satellites right more quickly and be able to you know uh, to prepare for any type of event where you know an asset in space goes down to be able to replace it quickly. Right? Um, how does how does True Anomaly fit into this kind of broader plan of tactical and responsive uh, warfare or um, resiliency? Thanks, Mo. This actually goes back to what we were talking about previously, which is that metric that we we hold um, that we that we uh, we track our technical progress against cost per meter per second. So responsiveness, 
we, we, as a company, we have sort of optimized for lots of assets that are inexpensive that have a, have a good amount of Delta V, right? That's the way that we've solved the problem because time is another very important variable in conflict. And so the, our objective is to, is to field a number of systems that allow for access to orbits that, that are sort of operationally relevant, but also have some reserve capacity to get to orbits that, that maybe adversaries go to or that there are anomalies in that you don't necessarily, that aren't sort of cost-effective to have an operator or system pre-existing in those, in those orbits. Um, so the, the short answer to your question is our solution is to optimize for, you know, dollar per meter per second. Yep. yep. Um, and to be really, and to think intelligently about the scales of time on which contingencies occur. So there's sort of three big buckets, right? There, there's, there's crisis and urgency. There's the thing that you need an immediate response force for, or excuse me, immediate response for. The second is sort of what you can't solve with a with in, in a matter of hours that requires or is going to evolve into a into a larger problem that you need a response for in on the order of days. And then there's new capabilities that you need to develop rapidly to deal with contingencies that you don't even fully understand uh, that you couldn't or sorry that you couldn't plan for originally. So we have a we have an interesting thesis around this uh, that connects the the proliferation of our spacecraft in orbit with a very responsive production capacity, design and production capacity, um, exactly to meet these, these needs. Is the plan over time, uh, to vertically integrate, uh, the business, um, or do you see enough, uh, components that are just like, you know, these are, it's just not worth our time to be spending any R and D efforts to be building those in house. We'll vertically integrate where it makes sense. We're learning as we as we continue to build and we design new systems. Um, there are certainly things that have to be built in house because there just isn't a solution on the market today, or the the component providers that we've partnered with. It's too capital intensive for them to go increase the production capacity or decrease the timelines or decrease costs substantially. So it's something we keep an eye on and and is a really a case by case approach. Got it. Um, I want to I want to go back to um, something we've talked we, we were talking about earlier, which is just on team, right? And especially starting off with four co-founders, um, the four co-founders that you started with. How do you think about bridging the gap um, between you know military strategy and engineering ex- um, engineering execution as it comes to the team, right? So maybe talk a little about team construction and how early days. Um, how how many how many folks work at True Anomaly now? Uh, okay. Approaching eighty today. Okay. Well, oh wow, that's great. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah. 80, 80, eighty people. You know, started off with four. Um, how did you think about team construction and where where there were maybe gaps in your own kind of skill set that you felt like you guys needed to bridge? Yeah. Thanks. The, the insight that we had pretty early on in the company's existence was to very clearly articulate where our founding team had expertise and where we don't. Um, what makes us special is the ability to translate, is to, to be able to observe sort of things that happen in the domain, the, the record of the threat, the trajectories and, and trends in, in um, the Space Force's solutions to operational problems, the evolution of those operational problems, and then to be able to create our own solutions, right? So that biases itself towards a product organization, which is really the right place for folks like 
the the founding team that that we've put together. Um, I would say this is one of the things that again really makes Turnomaly special. Is we we are product focused. We're not requirements driven. So Tom and Dan and Kyle's and my response core responsibility is to think about the threat, think about the operational need, and create new products. Right? There were no there were no requirements. There were no external requirements for the iPhone. Is sort of one of the adages that's commonly used. That's but in order to realize those product visions, you have to surround yourself with great operators and great finance people and great people, experienced people and, and great engineers. Um, the founding team has enough expertise in all of those areas to be able to select for talent and leadership talent in particular. And then we've let those leaders sort of build the teams that are consistent with our culture and our values. Yeah. So uh, we didn't talk about this, but you know, you did just close uh, a pretty significant um, Series A financing round. Um, you know, I was the reason why I uh, I was uh, uh, maybe not surprised, but certainly uh, excited to hear that you guys are already eighty people. Is I, I'm pretty sure you, didn't you start the company just last year, kind of early last year, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, that's right. We our first yeah, day so of operations you, was May second of last year. Yeah, I mean that's incredible. So from there to being on a transporter mission a year a year later and 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 uh, getting um, traction with the government, um, you know, I think it's it's been kind of incredible how quickly you guys have moved. And is it a bit of a testament as to why companies like like yours need to exist, right? Outside and you know, um, sitting on sort of the commercial landscape with 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 uh, folks with your background, right? So um, I think it's a, a very clear testament to why true, companies like True Anomaly need to exist. Thank you. I I would add, by the way, it's a testament to it, it's a testament to the this thesis that I think is becoming like more and more obvious that there's a, there's a very powerful relationship or, or per, very powerful potential outcome when you pair venture capital with a DOD market, right? Right. Particularly given the sort of economic headwinds that we're experiencing globally, like there is a way to accelerate the fielding of critical capability by leveraging private capital markets. Um, and to do that at unprecedented speed and to really solve solve the the problems that we're facing as a nation. And, and you couldn't do that without access to capital. You could you just can't do it in a sort of more traditional sense. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I didn't want to get into this topic because I wanted to use time with you to talk about some geopolitics. So let's just I'm going to detour for a quick minute. Which is because um, you, you, you brought up something really important. It's actually something that that I, I, I think about and I talk about quite often, which is like um, the need for industries like venture capital, um, and of course now that there's more um, openness, right, to fund any type of technology related to defense and dual use technology, right. I, I mean, I remember even a couple of years ago uh, there was a allergic reaction to those types of businesses, right. So. Um, I'm, I'm cu- curious, mm-hmm. like, what do you think in the industry has changed culturally that, um, you know, if you look at any chart on VC defense, aerospace and defense related um, capital investment, you know, it's just kind of up and to the right. So wh- what do you think from your perspective? Because, you, you, you know, I think you have a very unique perspective. What do you think changed? You know, I, I actually don't have a really strong grasp of sort of how venture capital markets have evolved over the last, you know, n decades. Um, I, I sort of just plopped into it, <laughs> right, right. In, in early last year. So, so I don't want to get over uh, out over my skis with too many sort of like hypotheticals or conclusions. But I'll, I'll say just a couple of things that I think are 
I've heard right around the, as I've been fundraising, um, there's a much stronger understanding of the dynamic and the return on investment associated with um, great defense investments. So it's very clear that <clears throat> defense investing is, is desirable in certain contexts. I would say probably like universally so, but in, in certain contexts, particularly the one that I think we, we all point to today, which is this sort of global macroeconomic headwinds. But the unit economics for defense investing is really good, right? So you, you have the capacity for high margins. You have almost no counterparty risk. Very minimal counterparty risk. It's all sort of front loaded. the The Defense Department always pays its bills, and you have a very, very large capacity for leverage, right? So you you can you can invest uh, venture capital. The, the the dynamic here is an investor comes to the table with cash. A, a relatively small and efficient team proves that there is market traction. You do that with relatively low dollars, and the step function between the uh, uh, sort of first order contract in the single digit millions and the tens of millions is sort of like it's it's a very fast transition if you deliver right so there isn't sort of an incremental uptick it, it's these kind of these large order of magnitude step functions um which create a sort of synthetic leverage between this back and forth synthetic leverage between the venture capital markets and the defense department. And now the defense department gets it, right? So they go, okay, well, if I just invest a, a, a nominal amount or provide a nominal contract to a small company that's, that's venture backed, I have a higher probability of getting the solution that I need as long as I show up with, I have the capacity to show up with cash later, right? So you get this really, this kind of positive feedback loop between venture and the department of defense that I think is sort of more, more obvious today uh, because companies like Anderil and Shield and others have been have been sort of have like shown shown the way, right? Um, for the Space Force's part, I think the the message that we're hearing from the the government customer is they're they're so hungry for real solutions that that these investments are are more interesting for them to make, right? They're interested in taking these sort of small bets on a broader set of companies, and the ones that are well capitalized and can come to the table with the solution are the ones that are going to win. Um, and that is going to unlock, that is historically unlocked access to even more capital, right? Um, which allows for, again, this, this yeah, that, that's really the underlying dynamic of this. I mean, that was a great yeah, answer. Back and forth. You sold yourself short. Okay. I, bet, I bet that was on purpose. <laughs> no, but that was seriously yeah, that was, that was you know, a great answer. Well, Copy a little on the fly, but yeah. No, that was, that was a great answer. And I would actually also add, uh, you know, comp- I think there's also been a realization that um, companies that focused on the government customer first, um, as they've built their business, tended to have su- tend to succeed more than than the companies that have focused on the commercial customer. There's yeah. tons of great businesses with great ideas that focused on a on a market that just didn't exist yet, and they got in, they got themselves into a lot of trouble. So um, I think there was that, that that realization as well. I think there was also a realization in the venture markets that that there is there is a right way of selling to the DoD. Right, there's now a model for it. Right. There's a way that you have to invest and there's a, there's sort of an order of operations for selling to the Department of Defense. Not every company can do that. So there, the bias has been sort of dual use technologies, particularly for space. So the, there's a lot of, there has, there have been a lot of venture investing firms that's, that whose thesis is, yes, we're interested in defense. Then really this is isolated to space, I think. Yes, we're interested in defense, 
but we want you to go after a commercial market first and then show that you have the ability to access DOD markets. That's actually not, even though the, even though there is some narrative around this from the DOD, that's actually not what the DOD really wants to hear. That's a little bit of a hangover from a couple of historical examples, Iridium being one where the, the DOD become, became super reliant on one provider. Mm-hmm. And that provider became singularly reliant that commercial operator became singularly reliant on the DOD. So when the commercial operator failed, all of a sudden the, the warfighter is left holding the bag, right? I would that risk has subsided a lot. So so I think you're there's there's just a maturity in the 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 commercial markets and the venture markets understanding of like what good defense sales motion looks like. Right. No, that's a great point. Uh, so we, we have about 10 minutes left. I'm gonna shift gears uh, one more time. And uh, I want to talk to you a bit about um, deterrence theory, right? And really the idea that, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in its simplistic way, right, threatening an adversary with, with um, uh, punishment or retaliation, right, that can, that can prevent them from taking a specific, ac- specific action, right? And, and of course, the obvious, obvious example that I think most folks like myself with, with no background in this understand is like nuclear, right? And, and thinking about it from a nuclear context, I have nuclear weapons, so you're not going to attack me with a nuclear weapon. Um, how do you think about deterrence in space? Like, what is that going to look like? Um, do you have any thoughts, ideas? Um, is that going to be something that is going to be part of military strategy over the next uh, you know, decade or so as it relates specifically to space? Yeah. I think the DOD is really starting to articulate a, th- a theory of deterrence that includes the space domain. And that began with the, the sort of confirmation that the vulnerability that has existed in the space domain stemming from the fact that we're using systems that are not designed for to like really defend themselves and that our adversaries have developed counter space technologies to, to counter that the advantage given, given by the space domain or technologies in the space domain. That is the first step, certainly. Now the Space Force and and the I would say the, the Department of Defense more broadly has also realized that one of the mandates for the Space Force is to provide independent options in the space domain. So if I can if I can not only defend myself and shore up a vulnerability and not have a vulnerability in a domain or reduce the, the, the quantity and intensity of vulnerabilities in a singular domain, but then have the capacity to hold assets at risk, to disrupt the the will and the sensing infrastructure and the communications infrastructure, and these are sort of all typical sort of military tactics, right? So I'm not um, pointing to anything in particular here, but but if you can create uncertainty and dilemmas in one domain that propagate through other domains, particularly in a domain in which there isn't a direct loss of life or the potential for a direct loss of life that it becomes very appealing right? right so as conflict has become more multi-domain it's it's more important that that there not be vulnerabilities in any given domain right and because of the interconnectivity of those vulnerabilities that those vulnerabilities not or sorry the interconnectivity of the domains of those vulnerabilities not propagate through other domains but then also then has the inverse effect, which is I can create options, right? If my adversary is also reliant on multi-domain technologies and it has interconnectivity between those domains, that I can create dilemmas in one domain that propagate through um, their 
their decision-making and communications infrastructure and other domains. So the, this is the sort of the ultimate victory here is to not have to fire a shot. Right. It's to, it's to have an infrastructure that makes it clear that I can absorb strike. Right. But also, um, recover and then seize the initiative. That's sort of like at the, at the theoretical perspective. And again, I'm not like, I'm not a deterrence theorist by any stretch of the imagination, but I would say like where this intersects with what Chernomaly is building is really Mm -hmm. at the level of our operational test and training infrastructure, driving towards the readiness of space operators to deliver credible combat capability, and then in space domain awareness. So you, you will make bad decisions with bad information. You have a higher probability right. of making bad decisions with bad information. And that all stems from having the sensing infrastructure that's in place to know what your adversaries are doing, what their intent is, what the range of options are, and then what their vulnerabilities are um, and, and capabilities. So as, as we think about um, more startups like yourself um, playing a much bigger role in the Space Force's strategy, uh, I do have to ask, are there other companies or any other, is there another company out there, um, you know, veteran owned and operated that you're most excited about? I don't spend a lot of time thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of really cool defense startups. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of really cool defense startups. Um, yeah. Modern, well, any, modern intelligence. It, yeah. Yeah. It is a great one to, to led by blood by John Dolan. I think Vanivar is really cool. I mean, I think the the sort of the vanguard operators in this space, like Shield, like Anduril, are sure. are doing amazing and interesting things. I think there's an ecosystem that's building here that's really really cool. I think that's probably going to lead to some significant consolidation. But um, I haven't seen a company to date that has sort of the same thesis and capacity that we do. Yeah. Uh, and but I would love. Uh, but if you do, Mo, let me know. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I, I do have uh, one last question for you. How did you decide yeah. on Denver? To, to, to place HQ. Yeah, we actually, the Lieutenant Governor and Governor just announced our, the establishment of our headquarters here. So, so this question is, is fresh for me. There's a lot of talent in Colorado. I mean, there's a reason that Palantir moved to Colorado, right? There's a lot of software talent. There's a lot of hardware talent. There's a ton of aerospace um, talent in particular in Colorado. Uh, the universities, so UCCS, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, the, the CU system, CSU, Colorado School of Mines are all top tier engineering schools that have really robust space programs. So I, I just think there's an ecosystem of knowledge um, and there's a sort of circulation of human capital between a ton of companies here that we wanted to, we wanted to tap into. And I think there are, there are some other factors that kind of pushed us towards Colorado away from places like California and others. But, you know, at the end of the day, Trudomaly will have a, a nationwide presence in D.C., in Texas, in Colorado, in California, and then eventually globally. Got it. Well, Evan, thanks so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Um, uh, we're going to have to get you back on because there's so much that I wanted to ask you that I didn't get a chance to ask you today. But really appreciate you uh, coming on. Thanks, Mo. It's been a lot of fun. 